All right, church. So last week, Taylor was hanging out with you guys. Taylor preached here. I preached at downtown. It was an amazing time. It was an amazing, amazing time uh, of worship. Taylor told me great things, told me um, that he felt the Holy Spirit move, and he believed that it challenged this church well. Um, so I just wanted to celebrate what Taylor did last week, him sacrificing coming here, me and Sarah Grace being able to go there, Corey and Justin stepping up to do worship so that Sarah Grace could have a week off. Like, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the way that you guys sacrifice every single week. Um, if you have your Bibles, you may turn them, you may turn them to uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first gospel. So if you look in your Bible and you see where it, the page where it says New Testament, the page immediately following that is going to be Matthew. So uh, if you do not have a Bible, you are welcome to pull it up on your phone. You're welcome to grab a Bible that's back there in the back. If you would like one, whatever works, uh, we want you, I want you as your pastor. I want you to bring your Bible with you to church. I want you to bring your Bible. I want you to take notes. Not for me, but I want you to record how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, how the Father is speaking to you through the messages and through the Scripture, so that you can share that with other people. Remember, we don't come to church on a Sunday so that we can just be filled up and go about our way. We come to church on a Sunday so that we can be encouraged, so that we can tell other people about what we have heard. We, t we come to church on a Sunday so that we can go throughout the week. So, I want you to bring your Bible with you, church. I want you to bring your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, like, it's all right. Just bring it next week. It's cool. Bring it next week. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Matthew chapter 1. We are starting a new series today uh, called Fulfilled. I think that we have a beautiful sermon graphic, uh, possibly, maybe, if Tyler wants to. Dang, Tyler, come on. Yeah, check that out. Ashley made that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Listen, I thought I was a graphic designer. I am not. That is graphic design. So anyway, we're starting a new series called Fulfilled, a new series called Fulfilled. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter one and chapter two. And so we're going to split chapter one and chapter two up into four weeks. So we'll be the first part of chapter one this week, the next part of chapter one next week, first part of chapter two the next week, and then the last part of chapter two for Christmas Eve. We will be having Christmas Eve service at our normal time that Sunday at 10 o'clock. So please come. Um, it's going to be a wonderful time to celebrate the birth of Christ. Remember, that's the whole reason that we do this, to celebrate the birth of Christ. So through this series, though, we want our church to understand that Christ has fulfilled Scripture. Matthew is communicating in this first chapter and the second chapter through this, all this Scripture that Christ came, that Jesus of Nazareth came and fulfilled Scripture. He came and fulfilled all the prophecies about himself and all the promises that God had given and he took on everything for us. He took on every single sin, past, present, and future, took it upon himself, sacrificed himself, fulfilling those prophecies, and then rose again, fulfilling those prophecies. We want our church to understand that Christ has fulfilled everything. Christ has fulfilled everything. And so as we go through this series, again, I want you to take notes. I want you to take notes so that you can go. So you can go throughout the week and encourage your disciples, encourage the people that you work with. Say, hey, I just want you to know if you've not heard about Jesus, Jesus came and fulfilled everything and he died for you and he loves you. And he wants you to have faith in him because he can save you. Like I want you to take notes so that you can, so that you can do that. So here's the thing about this first part. We're about to say a lot of names. Don't zone out because the names matter. Don't zone out. The names matter. So, if you would like, please turn, again, if you're not, turn to chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 1, and I'm going to read through uh, the chapter, uh, and then we will jump in. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. And then it says, from Abraham to David. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zezra uh, by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab. That's a really, really funny mistake, by the way, Aminadab, or a fun name. Aminadab fathered Neshon, uh, Neshon fathered uh, Salmon, uh, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered uh, Abijab. Uh, Abijab fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzzah. Uzzah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered uh, Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time uh, of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah fathered uh, Shethiel. Shethiel fathered uh, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel uh, fathered Abiod. Abiod fathered, uh, sorry, there's a pen mark, uh, Elikim. Uh, Elikim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zodak. Zodak fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Um, Nathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning reading this this genealogy, reading this creation story of your son, the way that you, you brought about this miraculous thing that would save us from eternity separated from you. Father, we just offer you all glory because you have done this in such a beautiful fashion, showing us, showing us that you care for us, that we're not too far gone, that we're not too broken, that we have purpose in your name, we have purpose in your kingdom, we have purpose when we place our faith in you, but apart from you, we have nothing. Heavenly Father, we just give you all the glory because you have brought us into your household. You have brought us into your family. We love you and we praise you. I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit fills this room and that it works in the hearts of every single person in this room this morning so that we, we proclaim your glory. We proclaim your stories. We proclaim who you are because we want to see other people come into your household, come into your family line. Heavenly Father, I just pray that the power of your Holy Spirit works this morning. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So, uh, I was originally going to have some pictures, but I did not take time to get the pictures all together. So, uh, I wanted to share with you guys a little bit of my family history, um, and it's going to come from my dad's side. It's going to come from my dad's side, and there's a reason. There's a reason that I'm going to do my dad's side, because it kind of relates to what we just read. Everything that we just read through that genealogy, it all works pretty much, except for a few, pretty much through the, the father's line. Pretty much works through the father's line. And so, a little bit of background. My great-great-grandfather, I've told you guys about my great-grandmother, Mama Dot. I told you guys about Mama Dot a long time ago. My great-grandfather, Papa George. Uh, I met Papa George when I was a little baby, right? My mom and dad are sitting over here. That's why I'm saying that. But uh, they surprised me by coming up this morning. So, um, but I met Papa George when I was uh, a baby, and he passed away when I was about two, right? Uh, when I was two. So, while I met my Papa George, I never really, like, cognitively met him. Like, I don't really remember anything about him. 
I have pictures of me with him, and I he- I've heard so many stories. I've heard so many stories of how loving he was, how caring he was, how intentional he was, how he loved to be around my brother, how he would always play with my brother, how he always would play with me, how he was just always committed. My, my great-grandfather, he was a dentist, and so he would uh, go overseas and on mission trips and help people that didn't have access to those things. Uh, at the same time, he served in the Salvation Army sometimes throughout the, throughout the winter, so he would go and ring the bell and collect change in front of a store. My, my grandfather sometimes, sometimes still does the same thing, my grandfather, Daddy Morris. Um, he has been here some, too, if you've met him, but uh, he does the same thing, and this is obviously Papa George's son. Um, he's done the same thing, too. He has served in a lot of different capacities. He's been a part of a church for a really long time, um, and then there's my dad. My dad, who's sitting right over here in this beautiful red shirt uh, with his arms crossed, who helped me try to figure out how to get this baptismal to drain this morning. Um, there's my dad, who has taught me how to pay attention to plumbing, how to look at electrical stuff, how to uh, ride a bike, how to ride a skateboard, how to jump on a trampoline, how to do a front flip, how to, do, how to swing on a swing. I mean, there's my dad, who has taught me almost everything that I know. He's taught me, and he's the person that I go to whenever i got a question. Listen. I called my dad like two or three weeks ago, and I was like, Daddy, I still call my dad Daddy, don't judge me. Um, I was like, Daddy, there, are, there is a woodpecker like attacking the side of my house. Our, the side of our house, our siding is made of cedar, and so like it attracts them naturally. So we have a hole probably the size of uh, a lacrosse ball now on the side of our house where a woodpecker has tried to make a nest in the side of our house. And so I was like, what do I do? Because I don't even know what to do. And he was like, I mean, there's a couple things you could do, but I don't really know either. I mean, you could just replace the wood. I was like, it's just going to keep coming back, though. So we have a pet woodpecker now, so it, just is, it is what it is. But, um, but I, he's the person that I go to, and that's the way that family lineage, lineages work. Oftentimes, at least a long time ago, you would look down the father's line. And it, the whole reason of that is that looking back in our family history, our family lineage, it matters. It matters. When we look back in our family history, it matters. Maybe you're thinking back to your father or your mother or your grandfather on your mom or your dad's side, whatever it is. You look back through your family history and and you understand who I'm related to. It matters. It matters. And you see, when, when Matthew wrote this part of Scripture, he was trying to help us understand that Jesus' genealogy, it mattered. Because it's a beautiful picture. It is a beautiful picture of how God worked out something so incredible. Something so just, it, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. But he was trying to help the, the Jewish people. That's who this would have been written to, was Jewish people. He was trying to help them see how clear, how clearly the Father had worked in the past. And who Jesus was because of his family lineage. You see, in this first chapter of the Gospel account, Matthew will use this family history to show us, to show us and his original audience that Jesus is the promised king. Matthew wrote this whole genealogy to show the original Jewish audience and us today, because what applied to them applies to us today, to show us that Jesus is the promised king. He is the king that, that, that was promised to, to Abraham. That's why I had Nick share that scripture, because that, that scripture is directly promised to the promise of Jesus. Jesus going out and bringing all peoples in and making the descendants of Abraham like, like the stars. That's why that scripture was spoken this morning. And, and we're going to see it in just a little while too, but also the, the promise to David. The promise to David that was made. Matthew is communicating clearly that Jesus is the promised king. 
Now, before we jump into the scripture, there's four little things that I just want to point out about the Gospel of Matthew. And I will point them out again each week as I preach, or Tyler. Tyler will be preaching in uh, two weeks, uh, so he will probably do the same. First, for context, Matthew, Matthew, also known as Levi, you'll see that in the Gospel, okay? He is a tax collector. Does anybody know what a tax collector is? That. Me and Sarah Grace know firsthand right now. It's a whole thing, but he's a tax collector. Back then, tax collectors were hated. And you're like, well, good, Grayson, that's a, that's a strong word. No, that is 100% fact. Matthew was a Jew who rejected his culture, rejected his people, rejected everything about who he was, and chose a life that would give him money and give him status and give him protection. He chose to be a tax collector. These were people that were hated among the people. And the reason is, is because whenever you rejected your people, it was you rejecting your God. So for Matthew, he was practically rejecting Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. He was rejecting everything, and so because of that, his people hated him. The other thing to take into account, it's just important to know, that all of the Gospel of Matthew was written in Greek. Some people try to say that Matthew was written in Hebrew. He, he changed it to Hebrew. That's not true. It's written in Greek. It was written in Greek, and he wrote that in Greek because most of the Jews at the time that this was written would have read in Greek because of the Roman occupation. Okay? Uh, the third thing, this is a Jewish audience, like I've already pointed out. So Matthew did not write this to uh, 21st century Americans. 21st century, right? We're in the 21st century, yeah. Uh, so 21st century Americans, he did not write this to Clifton. He wrote this to, to Jews living in Israel and that were living around Israel and that were quite possibly dispersed across the land. And then the last thing that we have to point out. Because he uses so many scriptures from the Old Testament all throughout the gospel, Specifically in these first two chapters, you see, you'll see him use them and reference things from it. You can get the sense that Matthew is trying to persuade Jews to continue being Jews, to continue on that their Messiah had come. But he's not, he's not pro-Judaism. Matthew is pro-Jesus. He's trying to show people that, he, that Jesus is the Messiah and that Judaism does not matter anymore. What matters is a faith in Christ, believing that he is the Messiah. So that's the last thing, that he's pro-Jesus. All of these things, again, build up to the main point that I want you to walk out of here with today, that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king, and we see that through his family history. So let's jump into uh, verse 1, Matthew 1, verse 1. So it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, so when it says an account, when you look at the Greek, that Greek word, it, it, it's translated biblos which is where we get our modern word, Bible. So that little phrase right there is what has given this book, this whole thing, the name Bible. That little tiny word, Matthew's first words in his gospel is what has given us the name Bible. It is, it is an account. It is a book. Matthew is saying the book, the, the, the account, the, the origin story. That's why he says the genealogy. If you look at the next word, it says the account, the book of the genealogy. You see that word genealogy, it's actually the word in the Greek, I'm going to use the English word, but in the Greek, it's the word Genesis. So Matthew is saying the book of the Genesis, the origin story, the creation story, the beginning, the birth story. It's really interesting that he uses this word that's directly tied to Genesis, a scripture that he would have been completely familiar with and most likely had memorized, even though he was rejected 
young Jewish men at the age of 12 had to have the entire Torah memorized. I couldn't even think about doing that. I could hardly read by the time I was 12. So that's an actual fact. So he's saying this, this origin account, this birth account, this lineage account, he, he's saying that what I'm about to tell you is the creation story. It is an origin story of Jesus. When he's, he says of Jesus Christ, did you know that Jesus is most likely was not his name? Did you know that? It's actually the way that we've translated it over time. His name actually, when you look at the Greek and you look at the Hebrew, I'm going to use the English term again to help you guys out, but it was actually Joshua. It was actually Joshua. And it's interesting that his name is Joshua. You say, well, Grayson, why? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad that you asked. You see, there's David Platt, actually. I want to use a David Platt quote here because it, I believe it best explains it. You see, Jesus being Joshua, being translated to Joshua or Yeshua, uh, David Platt says, he says, recall from the Old Testament that Joshua was the leader appointed by God to take his people into their inheritance. We just spent almost the entire year going through that, right? Joshua was the person to take everybody, the entire people, into the promised land. That was their inheritance. That was how they were going to live eternally with the Father in the promised land. David Platt continues, he says, Now Jesus is the leader appointed by God to take sinful people into their eternal life. You see, when God said to call him Jesus, to call him Emmanuel, the one that would bring people and save them from their sins, he's saying, hey, I'm going to use this man to deliver people. I'm going to use, them to use this man, I'm going to use my son to deliver people from their sin and death and into the eternal life that I have promised them, that I promised them from the very moment that I spoke to Abraham, that I spoke to Abram and told him that I would make his descendants as numerous as the stars, that I would bless all the people through him. Well, guess what? God has fulfilled that. God has fulfilled that through Jesus Christ. He has blessed us through his son, Jesus Christ, who, as we see, and we're going to go through in just a minute, is directly tied to Abraham. Directly tied to Abraham. The next thing, Christ. Did you know that Christ was not his last name? Tyler didn't. Did you know that Christ was not his, not his last name? You'd be like, well, kind of. Do you know what Christ is for? Do you know why he was given that title? Why there wasn't anything else used in that moment? Again, because Matthew is trying to pinpoint, he's trying to show us that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. You see that word Christ, it would not have been used for anything other than the Messiah or anointed one. So Matthew has started this book by telling us it is the book. So the entire gospel of Matthew, the entire gospel of Matthew, as well as this entire first chapter, the entire first two chapters. It is an account. It is a book of the creation, the origin, the, the lineage, the, the beginning story of Jesus Christ, the one who would deliver people from their sin, from their death, and bring them into life, and he is the anointed one. He is the anointed one. You see, Matthew's making it pretty clear here again that Jesus is the promised king. I don't think that he could make it any clearer to the Jewish audience that Jesus is the promised king. And he, he's like, well, wait, that doesn't really, I need, I need to add more. So then he says, the son of David. Well, why is the son of David important? Again, because there's scripture that's tied to that, and we're going to get into that, but there's scripture that's tied to that. If you would like to look it up this week, you can. It's in 2 Samuel 7. You can go and read that chapter. I highly recommend it. 
But it's scripture in 2 Samuel 7 where, where God tells David that he's going to give him a son. And that son will be a king forever and ever. His throne will be uh, protected forever and ever by the Father in heaven. God has fulfilled that scripture by sending his son, by sending Jesus, by sending the son of David. This is a phrase that the Jewish people, they would have heard that phrase and they would have known. Oh, snap. Like, this is serious. Like, this is real serious. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when your teacher... How many of us went to public school? Okay, pretty much all of us, okay? Um, how many of you remember when your teacher said, you better listen to me, or you better be quiet, or I'm going to give you lunch detention? Like, you knew whenever you heard that, that, like, you were going to get in trouble. I, I heard that a lot, but I heard that a lot. Uh, but you knew that when you heard that phrase that you were going to get in trouble, that, that you needed to pay attention or there were going to be consequences. Matthew using the phrase, the son of David, it is a phrase that would have caught the audience's attention. And they would have immediately locked eyes with the person that was reading this letter, reading this book, this account of the creation story of Jesus. They would have heard this and been like, wait, what did he say? This is serious. You see, you understand that, again, David was a king. So not only is he connecting it, Jesus to a promise, but he's also connecting Jesus to a king, the king, the prominent king that every Jewish person looked to, every, pers- every Jewish person probably looked up to. Heck, we spent the entire, we spent the entire summer going through David's Psalms. We look up to David, we look to David, and David was a pretty messed up man. Ain't that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y'all need to talk to me. Come on, wake up. All right. And so then the next part, it says the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham, this is directly tied, as I've already pointed out, it's directly tied to fulfilling the promise in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and all of the other promises that God gave Abraham. If you would like to continue reading through Genesis, but I recommend that you read that chapter if you would like to this week, Genesis 12. There's one thing to point out, though, about this lineage. When you look at how he's connected to Abraham and you look at how he's connected to David, I need you to understand that the lineage is not lineage that's through blood. The lineage is lineage that's through adoption. Because this is all of Joseph's lineage. This is all of Joseph's lineage. This isn't Mary's lineage. Remember, Joseph was not the biological father. He wasn't. This is lineage through adoption, and it's beautiful. Because through Christ, we're adopted. Through Christ, by faith in Christ and justified through Christ, we are adopted and brought into his household, brought into his family. We are given forgiveness. We are given, we are given redemption. We are given everything that we could ever need. Not want, need. Don't get those words confused. We are given everything that we need. But it's interesting, while even though the lineage may not be through blood, it is through the blood of Christ that we have been given all those things. So, remember, through all of this, the book of the creation, the origin story of of Jesus, the one who would come and deliver all the people, who is the anointed one, who is tied to to a king and uh, to a promise, and who is uh, tied to another promise, the father of all the nation. 
This is the story of Jesus, the promised king. That's what Matthew was trying to communicate through this one very small and very simple verse that Jesus is the promised king who would come and redeem and save and bring everybody. This is the one that they've been waiting for. This is the one that they've been longing for. This is the one that we've been longing for. This is the one that we've been waiting for. I don't know about you, but if you've ever thought that you felt lost, you've ever felt depressed, you've ever felt broken, you've ever felt that you're not good enough, I need you to understand that Jesus came to help you navigate those things. Jesus came to help you understand that those are just lies that Satan is speaking to you. Go read John chapter 8. It says that Satan is the father of lies and he will do everything to deceive you. He will do everything to deceive you, to throw you into depression, to throw you into anxiety, to throw you into into hate, to throw you into anger, to, to tear your marriage apart, to separate your marriage, to tear you away from your friends. He will do everything he can to keep you from the father and help you understand or to keep you from understanding that Jesus is the promised king. But Jesus fights just as hard for you. Jesus fights just as hard for you because he's given you truth. Truth that will set you free. And you're like, well, where is that truth? It's right here in the word of the Lord. You just got to seek it out. You just got to seek out the promised king through his word, through prayer, through the disciplines that we constantly talk about and we teach through discipleship. So, Matthew was making this point that Jesus is the promised king. And then it's kind of like, you know, Matthew could have just left it there and he didn't really need to do anything else, right? He could have just been like, this is, this is the point. This is what I'm telling you. I don't really need to name all these names. I don't really need to point all these things out. But no, Matthew was like, no, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to explain these two things that I just, uh, I just uh, explained in this moment. Sorry. So it says in verse 2, it says, Abraham fathered Isaac. Remember, Abraham was the father of Israel. He was the one who God gave the promise to. The promise, again, that is fulfilled through Christ. And then it says, Isaac fathered Jacob. Remember, Isaac is the one that Abraham tried to sacrifice. And God was like, whoa, 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 hold up. I just wanted to see if you would do it. Like, you don't actually have to do it. Here's a ram. Go sacrifice that instead. I don't know about you guys, but I think that that would be pretty messed up. Like, imagine how messed up Isaac probably was after that experience. Imagine how traumatized he probably was after that experience. So then Isaac has a son, Jacob. Okay, Isaac has a son, Jacob. Uh, And then Jacob, he fathers Judah and his brothers. Specifically, there's a reason why he specifically pinpoints Judah and his brothers, because Judah is the tribe that Jesus comes from. And we see that through verse 3. It says, Judah fathered Perez and Zezra uh, by Tamar. Here's the interesting thing about this one little piece of the lineage. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. How messed up is that? Like, especially today in our society, you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. Like, that doesn't really make sense. Like, why would that happen? It was sin. Judah was led and tempted into sin, and he ended up having these two children with his daughter-in-law. But it's interesting because, again, it's through that sin that Jesus still came. What does it say? Then it jumps to Perez, one of the sons of that, of that sin. It says, Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Aram, and Aram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab fathered Neshalon, uh, and Neshalon fathered Sam, uh, Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab was? We just went through Joshua, so y'all better shake your head. Yeah. Rahab was the spy. Or I'm sorry, Rahab was the one who housed the spies. Rahab was a prostitute. Like we know today that that's pretty scandalous. And back then it was just as scandalous, if not more. 
Because to be a prostitute back then meant that you worshipped a certain kind of God. And that was your only focus and that was your only, that was your only desire. So when Rahab learned, remember if you go back to Joshua, Joshua 2, if you go back to Joshua 2, when Rahab learned that and heard the stories of how Yahweh was leading the people closer and closer to the promised land and how they were conquering kings on the other side of the Jordan, when she heard of all that, when she heard of all that, she knew that she needed to change. She knew that she needed to surrender to, to the Father in heaven. She knew that Yahweh was real and all the other gods that she had been serving were fake and that they could not give her anything. It did not matter how many men that she slept with. It was never going to fulfill her. It was never going to provide her every need. She understood that Yahweh, the one who could lead his people to conquer kings, could provide everything for her. She immediately changed. You see the response in her mind. And it's interesting, again, because in Jesus' lineage, we see a prostitute. We see sin, disobedience, brokenness in his lineage. And then it says Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Remember, Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were completely hated by Jewish people. They were seen as unclean. They were seen as unworthy. They were seen as completely defiled and not welcome in Jewish society at all. So the fact, again, that there's a Moabite, somebody who was completely rejected and, and defiled according to cultural standards in Jesus' lineage shows us again that we're not much different than Jesus, right? Then it says, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. He could have just said David. People would have probably known, but he specifically emphasized King David. The reason that he emphasized King David is because he wanted to tie Jesus to the kingship. Let's continue. It says, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Does anybody remember who Uriah's wife is? Bathsheba. Why do you think Matthew left that name out? Scholars believe that Matthew left that name out specifically to get people's attention specifically to get people's attention, to, to help them see uh, a, a little piece of sin that's kind of hidden in there, that David did it secretly, and he had his son secretly, and that he, he ended up killing Uriah because he was ashamed of the sin. He was ashamed of the situation. You see, we see sexual immorality. We see brokenness again come up in this lineage tied to Jesus, the Son of God, who was meant to redeem all of creation. Then it says, Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered uh, Abijab. Uh, Abijab fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzzah. Uzzah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. And Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time uh, of the exile in Babylon. If you would like to know more about those names, you can go and read the end of 1 Kings and all of 2 Kings, and then you can also, if you would like, go read 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, okay? You'll read the story of David. You'll see, you'll see how Solomon came about. You'll read the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba. All of the whole reason that Matthew includes all of these names, again, he could have skipped. He's could, he could have skipped something. He could have just left this out and just said, through David, we're done. Save a little bit of parchment, whatever. He could have skipped it, but he specifically pinpointed this out because all of these men were kings. They were all kings. Remember, they're tied to Solomon and David, so they were all kings in Israel. Some of them led the people to worship the Lord, but some of them led the people into disobedience. So again, Matthew is painting the picture of 
there are people tied to sin. There, are, there is brokenness tied to Jesus' lineage. There is, there is hurt. There is pain. There is, there is anger. There is sin tied to Jesus' lineage. You see, it's interesting. We see in the first part that it goes from the father of the nation to king to a kingdom. Go from a promise to a promise. From Abraham to David, it goes from promise to promise. And then from the from from Solomon, it goes from Solomon to uh, Jeconiah. From Solomon to Jeconiah, we see them go from kings to slaves. Matthew's painting this picture, promise to promise, kings to slaves. God's people to God's people, God's people to slaves. They've gone back to where God brought them out of. He's painting this, this picture of redemption. And then we read the last part. The last part, it says, After the exile to Babylon, uh, Jeconiah fathered Shethleel. Shethleel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abud. Uh, Abud fathered Elakim. Elakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Then we see him take them, take Jesus' lineage from slaves to saved, from slaves to salvation. We see Matthew paint this picture to where Israel is climbing this amazing hill, and, and they're raising up, and they're becoming the people that God had called them to. But then we see sin. We start to see sin enter the picture, and they come down this mountain, and they enter this captivity. They enter slavery because of disobedience that, that was warned by Moses and Joshua. If you want to go back and read Deuteronomy and Joshua for all that, you can. But it's warned. We see Matthew painting this picture this picture of how God is working together this promise and, and working this, this truth out, working this salvation out, bringing people from slaves to salvation, bringing them from disobedience to obedience, bringing them from the lack of grace and mercy to grace and mercy. God's grace and mercy was always present, but they were not pursuing it because for them, they had to pursue it through the temple. We don't have to pursue it through the temple because we have Jesus Christ who has become the one and only sacrifice that we need to atone for all of our wrongs, to atone for all of our sins, because we are just as sinful, we are just as disobedient, we are just as broken as all the things that are messed up with this genealogy. Matthew is, is, is uh, quoting and, and listing all these people to show us that Jesus was just as human as us. He was just as human as us. You can't miss that, that, uh, that important fact. Jesus was the promised king, but that promised king was just as human as you. He was just as susceptible to sin as you. He came down and he, he navigated every ounce of sin, just like you. Just like you do every single day. Every ounce of anger, every ounce of frustration. Can you imagine how frustrated Jesus got with his disciples? Especially when he repeated himself 13 times to them. Like, imagine that. I'm sure he was like, what are y'all doing? Do y'all not get this yet? He actually said that sometimes. Did you know that? So, he's painting this picture showing us, yes, Jesus is the promised king, but he's just as human as you and I are. And through this man, Christ, like he says, through this man, God has given us the Messiah. Through his son, he has given us the Messiah. And there's one last thing that's important to point out. So in verse 17, it says, so all the generation from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, again, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. 
I don't know how much, I'm not good at math, but I don't know how much you guys know about numbers in the Jewish culture. But the number seven was a number that represented completion. It represented holiness. It represented completion in general, okay? So the fact that there's 14, that means that it's double completion. 7 plus 7 equals 14. Good job. I'm glad you guys are listening. You guys get an A plus. So it's double completions. Double completions three times. Again, if you look at the number three in Jewish society, in Jewish culture, that's another number that meant completion. It meant divine wholeness. It meant perfection. So Matthew, through these little, little, just subtle details, 14, 14, 14, double completion, double completion, double completion, three times, he's saying, in all perfection, in all glory, in all might, in all divine wholeness, in every ounce that God could, he completed this task, and it is completely completed. He is saying that I have accomplished a task, that God has accomplished a task. There is no need to doubt it. There is no need to believe that Jesus is not the Messiah, that Jesus is not the King, because it is, it is exactly it is exactly how it should be, and it is completed divinely in a holy way. Matthew knew, again, that his Jewish audience would take this and understand that Jesus was the promised king. Jesus was the promised king. So, what does this mean to us, church? All these details, all these names, all, all this sin that comes up in this genealogy— Jesus being the king, uh, the son of David and the son of Abraham, what does this all mean to us? We understand that it meant a lot to the Jewish audience. That for them, it meant everything. For them, it meant that their salvation had come. But the thing that Jewish people often misunderstood is they thought that it was going to be a materialistic salvation. That it was going to save them from Rome. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to offer salvation to the nations, to, salvation to all of the people. You and me. So Jesus being the promised king, what does it mean to us? It means that salvation has come, church. You might say, well, Grayson, I know that. Praise God that you know that. You see, to the outcast, to the brokenhearted, to the discouraged, to the distressed, to the, to the depressed, to whatever you may consider yourself to be, salvation has come to you, and it has been offered to you by faith. And by faith you are justified through Christ and saved from all sin and brought into the Father's household, redeemed and called by Him, made whole by Him, made holy, faultless, blameless, as Paul says in Colossians. Your past cannot hold you back, because if your past... If your past holds you back, then that means Jesus' past would have held him back and he wouldn't have been able to fulfill what he was able to fulfill. Did you hear all the, broken, all the brokenness and all the messed up stuff that was in that genealogy? Like, come on, were you listening? Like, there was a prostitute. There was murder. There was disobedience leading a nation. Like, don't let that confuse you. Like, there were kings that were literally disowning Yahweh and choosing to not worship him because they didn't like it, but rather choose other gods and worship those other gods because they gave them what they wanted rather than what they needed. Church, salvation has come to you. Salvation has come to you and me, to us, and it has saved us. It has called us with a holy calling. 
with a holy call, not because of what you were going to do. God did not call you. He did not save you because of the things that you were going to do for him, but rather because he wanted you to have grace and mercy. He wanted you to live with grace and mercy. He wanted you to have that because he wants you to be in his household. Now, being in his household does not mean that you can just continue your life the way that you can, the way that you want. No, there's a cost. There's a cost to living by faith in Christ. And it is complete self-sacrifice. Romans 12.1, present yourself as a holy and pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. It means that you completely die to yourself and you live for others. You live to see Christ proclaimed and, and living in others. Truthfully, be real honest. Before I met Jonathan, Jonathan had no idea. I literally just thought about this, but I'm going to use it as an illustration. Then I'm going to go on to my last point. Before I met Jonathan, I had only really discipled one person, and I had struggled to do that. I really had. I had struggled to, with that discipleship relationship. But when I started hanging out with Jonathan, and please hear this as a work of the Spirit, like it really, it really was. When I started meeting with Jonathan, I wasn't concerned about what I wanted to see happen in that. I was only concerned about seeing Jonathan grow in his faith. That was all that I was concerned about. Paul? What was Paul concerned about? Paul was concerned about the advancement of the gospel, regardless of his life. He did not care if he lived or he died, because either way, he got to see Christ advance. When we place our faith in Christ, we have received salvation. But if we keep that salvation to ourselves, we are not being obedient, which leads me to my next thing. We have to tell somebody. Church, we got to tell somebody. Did Matthew keep it to himself? If Matthew had kept it to himself, we would have missed out on a lot of Jesus' teachings. We would have missed out on the Sermon on the Mount. He's the one that rec records it in the most detail. We would have missed out on the Great Commission. Did Matthew keep it to himself? No. He told somebody. We got to tell somebody, church. We got to pursue people. We got to go after them. There are... I was sharing this with the elders this week, and I'm going to share it with you guys. On average, the average American knows around 400 people. You might be like, whoa, I don't know that many people. Yes, you do. Go look at your Facebook friends. The average American knows, whether it just be names or you just know the person's face and you can kind of place them in, in your life, you know on average about 400 people. Some of you may be more because you're more popular than me, whatever. But out of those 400 people... We know and trust, we know and trust, keyword trust, about 15 people in our lives. That can include family, that can include friends, that can include people through church, whatever. But these are people like if you need somebody to go and feed your cat or, or let your dog out, like you're going to call that person. If you need somebody to come and pick you up from the hospital because you don't have anybody to do that. If you need somebody to come and sit and watch you in a sporting event because you really want someone to do that, this is someone that you know and you trust. On average, we know 15 people. According to Barna, which is a statistics group, okay, 
seven of those 15 people know Jesus and have faith in him. Let that sink in. Half of the people that you know and you trust in your life know Jesus and have faith in Jesus and are living for Jesus. How heavy is that? That those people are going to live eternally separated from their Father in heaven. That they don't know that they can have freedom through Christ. Not freedom to do whatever they want, but freedom to live in his presence. To live with the Father who can give them anything and everything they ever need. He's not going to give you a Tesla. But he might give you like a Subaru or something. Ain't that right? So, who are you going to tell this week? Who are you going to tell that Jesus is the promised king? Who are you going to lean into and tell that Jesus is the promised king who came to offer you salvation? Because that's what this season is all about. That's why we do Advent. That's why we decorated the church. That's why we have these paintings on the church. Everything that we do is to celebrate that Jesus is the promised king who came and took on flesh and bone and was just like you and me and died to save you. Who are you going to tell that this week? Is it a coworker? Is it a cousin? Is it a friend? We have to be thinking about those things, church. Because we need to see the gospel advance. South Carolina needs to see the gospel advance. The United States needs to see the gospel. The world needs to see the gospel advance because the world needs one and only thing. And his name is Jesus. Amen? That's right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time to worship you. It's time to hear from your word, to be encouraged by your word, to be challenged by your word, to hear how you, that Jesus, you came and you came through a lineage that was broken, a lineage that was, that was so discouraging, that was so just messed up, and you still redeemed all of mankind through it. God, all glory belongs to you. All praise belongs to you because we could never do anything like that. We could never save humanity. Some of us lock ourselves in our rooms and we don't want anything to do with humanity sometimes. Heavenly Father, we just give you all the glory and praise and honor because you have sent us the promised king and you have fulfilled all things through him. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you are encouraged by the message. At ID Clifton, we exist to love God, love others, and make disciples. To learn more about ID Clifton, including our gathering times, small groups, and events, please visit us at idclifton.com. We'll see you next time.